Well, we are continuing our series, Who Needs God? We're in part three. And if you've missed part one and two, you are coming in in the middle of the movie. But the good news is, as long as you pay your electric bill and have internet, you can catch up if you go to whoneedsgod.com, whoneedsgod.com, whoneedsgod.com. And um, as you're listening to these messages, most of us are thinking, ah, I know who needs God, I know who needs God, I know who needs God. And so feel free to pass these along, tell for your friends about it, and hopefully we're gonna answer some questions that maybe you've been wrestling with for a long time. So part three, previously on Who Needs God. We began this discussion around the tension that a lot of us feel. In fact, about 25% of the population of the United States has, has designated themselves or have stepped into the category that's now known as the nuns. And the nuns are those who are just not affiliated, not, not religiously affiliated. And many, in fact, the majority of the nuns actually stepped away from Christianity in this country, about 35% of millennials, 25% of the population. And you may be in that category or maybe one of your kids or your grandkids or you know someone. And it's a tough place to be, but it's understandable why people are making the decision just to unaffiliate or disaffiliate with religion and specifically with organized religion and in this country um, with, with Christianity. There are some very unsettling things about God. There are some unsettling things about religion. There's unsettling things about theism. There are unsettling things about the Bible. There are things that are kind of mysterious and unsettling about Christianity. So of course, with unanswered questions and if you continue to get Sunday school answers to your adult questions, if you were act, asking fact-based questions Questions and you were getting faith-based answers, of course you would step away from that version of religion or that version of Christianity. But at the same time, the whole idea of putting a check in the atheist box is a little bit overwhelming for most people in the United States as well. The idea of a creator-less universe I mean, as unsettling as religion is, an uncreated universe, an impersonal force that somehow got us here through natural selection, most people aren't ready to step into that category. So consequently, on one hand, there's doubt. We have religious doubts. On the other hand, the idea of facing a future where there is really no purpose and there's nothing more than what I can kind of mine out of my daily affairs, that leaves most people, not all people, but most people feeling a little bit of despair so more and more people in our culture and more and more people in our society feel a little bit stuck in the middle. Now, when I say stuck, this is, I don't mean they wake up every morning worrying about this. And if you're in this category, it's not like you don't have a great life and things are great and you have friends and family and you're busy and you're working. But if you had to sit down and describe yourself, you would say, you know what? I'm not really religious. I've kind of unaffiliated. Maybe I grew up in church, kind of know some Sunday school stuff, but I just had too many questions. It's not scientific enough. I don't have faith in faith. At the same time, I hope there's something out there because atheism, while it is not all that appealing, Christianity for me, you might say, has lost its appeal. And the reason I know this and the reason I wanted to do this series is I love to listen to stories of deconversion, read blogs from people who've deconverted specifically from Christianity. There are podcasts that are hosted by people who just interview people who've deconverted from Christianity. And every time I hear one of those stories and every time I listen into one of those stories, there are a couple of threads that you know kind of weave their way in and out of just about, not all, but just about all those stories. So we talked about one of those last week. We talked about the somebody told me so God, if you weren't here last week or if you missed the message before this one, you may wanna tune in. Somebody told me so, God. We talked about the gods of our childhood, you know, bodyguard God that never let bad things happen to good people, then bad things happen to some good people. You're like, I don't believe in that God. Uh, we talked about several versions of God, and we said, if you quit believing in any of those gods, good, because you are right. Those gods don't exist. 
In fact, we said if you have lost faith or are losing faith, it may be because you have lost faith or you're losing faith in a God that never existed in the first place. That's what we talked about in part two. Then I said the other thread that we oftentimes see weave its way through the stories of people who've stepped away specifically from Christianity is what we call a Bible told me so Jesus. A Bible tells me so Jesus. A Bible tells me so Jesus. So today, I wanna spend the majority of our time addressing the a Bible tells me so Jesus version of a story which may be part of your story. But here's a little warning. You've gotta listen carefully, okay? No daydreaming, no counting the lights in the ceiling, no online shopping while I'm preaching, okay? You gotta look right here. If you, if you zone out for just a minute, you may be lost, not because you're not smart, but because we're covering a lot. It's a bit complicated, but I'm telling you, for some of you today, for some of your kids, your cousin, your aunt, your uncle, and your grandkids, for some of you today and some of your extended family, this might be the message, not because it's coming from me, I didn't make any of this up. In fact, if you think at some point he's making this up, Google is your friend, okay? I'm not, I'm not making any of this up, but this may be the message that gives some of you permission, permission to step back toward the faith you grew up with, back toward Christianity. Not the version of the faith you grew up with because you outgrew that version, but back toward Christianity as Christianity was meant to be believed and understood. Now, um, perhaps, and here's, here's where we, we kind of start the conversation, and this is where we have our, our first you know, collective um, you know, aha, not aha moment, but oh my gosh moment. And the conversation really begins like this. Many of you, you're like me, many of you were brought up to believe this. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? I mean, it's a fabulous song. Most of our kids are still singing this song. We sang this song. Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next line? Right, for the Bible tells me so. And this is where our trouble began. It really did, this is where our trouble began because, and don't leave, because the implication is, the implication is, this is important, the implication is the Bible is the reason we believe. The Bible is the reason to believe. In other words, I can believe Jesus loves me because it's in the Bible. I grew up in a church where basically the byline, the subtitle for everything was, if the Bible says it, that, anybody? Settles it right here on the front row. Yeah, that's right. If the Bible says it, that settles it. And so we send kids off to college with a, if the Bible says it, that settles it. And oh my goodness, they discover that that didn't settle it. And then they come home and they say, mom, dad, grandma, my granddad, uncle, aunt, did you know, did you know? And it's like, I don't ask those questions. The Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible says it, that settles it. The problem is this. The problem with that is this. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, if the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. In other words, Christianity cannot survive if the Bible goes away. Christianity cannot survive if somehow every single part of the Bible isn't absolutely true if the Bible is the foundation of our faith. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, it is all or nothing. This is why when you grew or growing up, every once in a while you would bring information to your parents or your grandparents or maybe somebody else who was raising you and you'd say, today at school we learned and they just kind of shut you down. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. We're Christians. We don't believe that. It's like, yeah, but it's true. Well, we don't believe that. Well, what was that about? Why are Christians so afraid? Why are Christians so fearful? Why are we not the most curious people and scientifically oriented people in the world? I'll tell you why. 
Because you were raised in a culture like I was raised in and it was all or nothing. If anything proves that something in the Bible isn't actually, absolutely, historically, scientifically reliable, uh uh-oh, the whole thing comes tumbling down because this version of Christianity is a house of cards. And all you have to do is pull out one card and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards that comes tumbling down when we discover that perhaps the walls of Jericho didn't. When we discover or we're told that perhaps there was no exodus from Egypt to the promised land, that there's no historical evidence of that. When we're told in school and in graduate school that there's no evidence for a worldwide flood when people point out apparent contradictions in the Bible, when in school we're told there's no way the earth is 6,000 years old, it's four and a half or 4.55 billion years old and the universe is 14 and a half billion years old and all of a sudden all we have to do, you know, the, the tension is around, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, but science has said, science has said, the Bible says, science has said, the Bible says, and all of a sudden there's this extraordinary, extraordinary tension. If the Bible, if the Bible, If the entire Bible isn't true, then let's be honest, the Bible isn't true. I mean, if the whole thing isn't true, because you grew up and I grew up, if you grew up in a church in the United States, it's basically the Bible says it, that settles it. The Bible says it, that settles it. And then we grow up and we become adults and we become aware of things that make us wonder if everything in the Bible is true. And when we conclude, or if we come to the conclusion that maybe it's not all as true as we were told it was true, Christianity comes tumbling down. Christians feel, your parents felt, your pastor felt, perhaps you still feel, that the pressure to defend the Bible, because if you don't defend the Bible, you can't defend Christianity. And this puts the Bible in the center of the debate. This puts the spotlight on the Bible. This puts the Bible in a place that if we can't defend everything in it, everything in it goes away. And the good news is that that's very unfortunate. And the great news is that is absolutely unnecessary. Christianity and the Christian faith is far, far, far more endurable than any of that. So here's here's my plea today, and then we're gonna jump into some detail. If you deconverted, if you walked away from Christianity, if you kind of stepped back from the whole thing because of something you read in the Bible, something you were told about the Bible, I want you to listen carefully because at the end, I want to invite you to take a step back toward the faith of your childhood, not childhood faith. It's time that it grows up. But the great news is there is a grown-up version. There is an adult version that is far less fragile then the Bible says it, that settles it. And if the Bible didn't say it, that doesn't settle it. And if there's anything wrong with the Bible, then the whole thing comes tumbling, tumbling down. Christianity, okay? Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. Your birth certificate documents, documented something that happened. And the New Testament, we're not talking about the whole Bible, the New Testament documents document something that happens. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. It is the other way around. And here's why I say that, but it requires a history lesson. So instead of taking notes, I would suggest that you take pictures. 
But if you're going to take pictures of the screen, you need to turn your flash off. We have plenty of light up here, believe me. Okay, a little history lesson. And no history lesson is complete without a timeline. So here's the timeline, you ready? Everybody thinking, everybody with me? Okay, first of all, we gotta get one thing straight. Um, in the first century, um, when Jesus was alive and walking around, they were used the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar that we use, which means the dates got a little out of whack. In fact, around 525 AD, somebody came up with the bright idea of reorienting history around the birth of Christ. AD, BC, not ACDC, two different things. AD, BC, okay? But unfortunately, unfortunately, in 525, they weren't able to accurately figure out when that actually happened. Then in the 16th century, the Gregorian calendar became the calendar that we use, and they incorporated into it the whole AD, BC. So all of that to say, you don't have to remember any of that, all that to say, Jesus was born about two or three years before his birth. No, so Jesus was born Jesus was actually born in two or three BC, the best that we can tell. But here's where we start moving forward with our um, discussion today. At around 30 AD, around 30 AD, Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And about two and a half or two months later, the church was launched. In 30 AD, several dozen Jewish people went into the streets of Jerusalem and they said, you crucified him, God raised him, we've seen him, say you're sorry. You crucified him right here in this city. God has raised him from the dead. We've seen him. Now you need to say you're sorry. And hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem embraced a risen savior, not 50 years later, just a few weeks after the actual resurrection. And when that happened, the church was born. The next important date as we move through this is 70 AD. In 70 AD, the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman legions. And in 66 AD, four years before, um, Vespasian came down from Galilee and began to roll up city and town and village after city, town and village, coming down, moving down toward Jerusalem to squelch and to put to end once and for all the Jewish revolt and the Jew Jewish rebellion against Rome. When he approached the city of Jerusalem, basically he had funneled all the people who were in rebellion, all the different factions all the different gangs, all the different people who were trying to take over and run the country. He funneled them all into the city of Jerusalem. Then he went to Rome, eventually became an emperor, left his son Titus to finish it up. Titus builds a ditch and an earth wall all the way around the city. And day after day after day, crucifies hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands of Jews outside the city as a threat. Eventually, the walls are breached actually on August the 6th. August the 6th, the year 70, the walls were breached. The Roman soldiers went into the city of Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. They enslaved tens of thousands, some say hundreds of thousands. So many slaves drove the price down in the slave trade market from there all the way to the city of Rome. Jews were eventually expelled from the city. No Jews allowed in the city of Jerusalem. And thousands and thousands and thousands of Jewish people died, 70 AD. Now, the reason this is an important date for us is none of what I just described, none of what I just described is described or referenced in any of the New Testament documents that eventually became our New Testament. So one of the mysteries of history is why is there no reference to an event? It wasn't a day. This was like really five years, but four intense years where it was dangerous to live in Galilee, dangerous to live in the city of Jerusalem, dangerous to live in Judea. The Jewish people were constantly under threat. I mean, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. And there is no reference to any of that 
In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, there's no reference. And the only logical, probable explanation is it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. Which means that all the New Testament documents, all the New Testament manuscripts that were written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, all of these documents were probably written before the destruction of the temple which means they were all written between about 49 and 69. But let's be kind of open-minded because a lot of scholars think they were written later. So we're gonna extend our little yellow line out to about 86 AD. This is when the gospels were written and the epistles of Paul. Now the reason that's important is these documents were written during the time when the eyewitnesses to what Jesus claimed to have done were still alive. Now, what you were taught and what some of us were taught in school and sort of the word on the street is no, 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 no. All these things were written way after 90 AD, maybe 100 AD, way after, but there is no, there is absolutely no evidence for that, none. The reason some scholars wanna push the writing of the New Testament documents way out here is because of miracles and specifically because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so as the story goes like this, well, you know, there was all these, everybody wanted to believe he was alive and everybody started saying that maybe they'd seen him and time went by and time went by and time went by. And through oral tradition, these stories got bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually somebody wrote them down because it takes about 70 years for legend to start to sound like history. The problem is nobody references a point in time when if you are Jewish and you're living in the vicinity of, Ju of Jerusalem, Judea, and you're traveling to Galilee, how in the world could you not at least reference what was going on while you were writing and documenting the life of Jesus? It's virtually impossible to imagine. So all of the evidence, or most of the evidence, really all the real evidence, points to the fact that these documents were written between about 50, 52, 49, and 70, or let's string it out to 86. Now, here's the part that you don't care about, but this is so important, especially if you walked away from Christianity because of something in the Bible. The New Testament writers, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they did not write as if this was story. In fact, there are stories written, you know, pre century before Jesus, two or three centuries after. So there's like a story motif when people are writing fiction. It sort of all sounds the same, just like it does today when people write fiction. But the, the um, gospel writers wrote as if they were writing history. And I wanna just give you one example of this, okay? This is really, really important. So this is from the Gospel of Luke, and these are the verses that if you read the New Testament, when you get to them, you just skim over them because you think, oh, this isn't important. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice how the extent that Luke goes to to pin himself down to a specific historical context because he was writing history. Listen to what he does. Look how far he goes. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Aturia, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So when did this happen? <laughs> now, let, let me, this is, this is huge, okay, look. This is Luke's, wait, remember, we're not talking about the Bible. This is a person who wrote a document that we call the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke's way of saying, Fact check me, I dare you. This isn't, you know, some time ago, or a long time ago, or back when the Romans ruled the earth, or in, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, or once upon a time, or back in the day. 
He says, no, no, no. What I'm, the story I'm about to tell you is narrative, is history, this really happened, and I wanna pin it down to a very, very, very specific time in history because this actually happened, check my facts. Now, if you're making something up that you want people to believe, you would never, ever do this. This is way too risky, it's much too easy to show that you're lying or exaggerating. Now, I gotta move on, but this is such a big deal. I wanna give, give you a resource that if you're interested in this kind of thing, my friend Frank Turek a few years ago wrote a book called Stealing from God. And in chapter seven of this book, he goes deep on this whole question of can we really believe or take seriously the New Testament documents? The entire book is fabulous. In fact, he addresses many of the things that we're addressing in this series. It's an easy to read book. He's done a great job with his research, but chapter seven deals specifically with this question. So here's what happened. These documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Paul's epistles, all of these documents are so valuable to the first century church, that what do they do? They run down to Kinko's. It's like, I wanna have my own copy. Oh, there's no Kinko's. So what do they do? They begin to meticulously copy these documents. And now here's something you don't know, but it's just one of those unexplainable mysteries of history. In the first century, there is an explosion of documents and documentation about the life of Jesus and the copies of the letters of Paul and Peter and James. I mean, there is nothing to match this in any ancient history. In fact, there's nothing to match this until the creation of the printing press. The, the idea that so many people would write so many things and meticulously copy the, you know, the core essential teachings of the church for it to, to circulate the way it did, there's nothing like it. There's not even anything close. These documents were distributed to Rome, from Jerusalem, to Constantinople, um, to Egypt, um, all around the Mediterranean rim. In fact, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of these documents. Now, when you go to school or when people kind of say, ah, the New Testament or the Bible, can't believe the Bible, there are lots of errors and they just copy, copy, copy. Look up here. That is so ignorant. That, that's just somebody who doesn't wanna take the time to look at the facts. That's somebody who's lazy. But if you are interested in stepping back toward the guy that you grew up with, but the grown-up version, if you are really interested when you look at the facts, the facts are so extraordinarily overwhelming. Let me ask you a question. What do you make copies of? I know the answer. You make copies of things that are important. I mean, you throw stuff away all the time, but maybe years and years ago, you actually hand copied something. Or now it's like, oh, I wanna make sure this doesn't fade over time, I'm gonna copy it. Or I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna go to my copier, make copies. We only copy things that are important. And let me tell you what, wax tablets and the things that they wrote with were so expensive and so precious, it is even more evidence as to how valuable these documents were that they, were they weren't writing new things, they were making copies of things and distributing them all over the place. They were user name and password careful, okay? Because this was so extraordinarily important. And again, you hear, well, there's mistakes, and you know, anybody that writes something, there's mistakes. Absolutely, there are thousands of variations in these documents because they were copied so many times and dispersed so broadly. Here's the great news. There are thousands of documents that can be compared to each other, and guess what? If you have an English study Bible, any English study Bible, in the footnotes of a Bible you probably already own are the variants that make or could possibly make any difference in what's being said or taught. This is why every once in a while in a footnote it'll say, an earlier document says this, an earlier manuscript says this, a later manuscript says this. You know why? There's nothing to hide. 
And the variance in the documents makes no theological or historical difference, zero. In other words, there's not a batch of documents that say Jesus was crucified and another ones that say, no, he fell off a ladder while cleaning the gutters. You know, it's not like there is no, and I'm being facetious, there is no, there is absolutely no big change in the story because they were username and password careful. This was like, oh my gosh, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Can I hang on to this for just a couple hours? You can sit there and watch me. I know you don't wanna lose this, I promise. Let's compare. They were, it, was, it was unbelievable. And here's, here's the thing though that I don't want you to miss. They did not make copies of the Gospels because they believed they were inspired. They made copies of the Gospels because they believed they were true. So time marches on, then we go back to our timeline. These documents are circulated all, really all over the known world. Then in 312, something extraordinary happened. Constantine defeated, um, uh, at the Tiber River, Constantine defeated the other emperor. There are actually three emperors at this time. Maxentius, he con conquered, he destroyed Maxentius' army. Maxentius escaped with his life, tried to cross the Tiber River, drowned in the river. They found his body later. And in this moment, in 312 AD, Constantine becomes the undisputed emperor of the Roman Empire. It's the end of the Tetrarchy and now he is in control of the Roman Empire. But here's, the, again, another mystery of history. During this time between the resurrection of Jesus and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the time that Constantine became the emperor of Rome, during these years, Christianity grew and grew and grew and gained influence and these were the persecution years. These were the, you know, throw them to the lion's years, you know, right before, when Nero was, was emperor. These were the years throughout here where there were localized persecutions constantly of Christianity, and yet it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew and it spread, and it's extraordinary, and it is unexplainable. In fact, Constantine's mother became a Christian before Christianity was legal, in spite of the fact that the Romans had a, you know, so many gods that they worshiped, in spite of the fact that Rome was eternal, the eternal city, that no one could defeat Rome, and yet in spite of that, in spite of the fact that the Romans said, the reason we are so powerful and the reason we're so successful is we have the favor of the gods, and with the favor of the gods, Christianity grew and it spread. Eventually, Constantine lifts the restriction on worship in the Roman Empire. Eventually, he embraces Christianity. But here's what most historians will tell you. Constantine, and this is fabulous, this is, this is unbelievable. Constantine did not embrace Christianity because he was all that interested in becoming a Christian personally. Constantine embraced Christianity to unify the empire. Do you know what the significance of that is? That is staggering, that Constantine's like, I gotta find something that most people in the empire have in common, and it's not the Roman gods anymore. That was the significant spread of Christianity in the most difficult years. That's why I'm convinced, this is just my opinion, that Christianity, made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible even existed. 
That the Christian faith grew from 30 to the time of Constantine, not on the back of the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches. In fact, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish scriptures were not combined with those New Testament documents. Look at this. They weren't combined with the New Testament documents until 350 AD. The first record or the first um, existent copy that we have of the Old Testament, it wasn't called that till about 130 AD. The Old Testament being combined with the, the Greek New Testament, the first, co- the first reference or the first one we have or the oldest one we have is 350 years is 350 years after the birth of Christ and here's why because it was illegal not only that it was expensive nobody even even had access to the Jewish scriptures unless you went to a synagogue it took Constantine becoming the emperor and having the wealth and the influence to allow the scribes and the scholars to gather these documents put them together they were still arguing about which of the New Testament which of the first century um, Christian writings should become part of what would eventually be called the New Testament but the Bible as we know it the oldest copy we have is 350 years after Jesus Why? Because during this time, they're being written, then they're being copied and distributed, and over time, they were being gathered. And the first time that the word Bible, or the Bible, was put as a label on this collection of Old Testament Jewish scriptures and New Testament writings was about 33 years later in 388 AD. Now, here's my point, and this is I mean, this is a showstopper. This is, oh my gosh, I didn't know this. This is, oh, I, I need to pay attention to this. You ready for this? Before the Old Testament, which it wasn't called the Old Testament when this happened, and before the New Testament, the term New Testament didn't show up till about 200 or 220 AD. Before the Old Testament, New Testament were combined and titled the Bible. Christianity had already replaced, had already replaced the pantheon of Roman, barbarian and most Egyptian gods and was the state religion for the Roman Empire before anyone ever held one in their hand. In fact, it would really be almost to the invention of the printing press before anyone ever held one in their hand. The first, second, and third century Christians, look at this, the first, second, and third century Christians who faced tremendous hardship believed Jesus loved them before the Bible told them so. First, second, and third century Christians believed they were absolutely convinced Jesus loved them, but this was before there was a Bible to tell them so. Peter, James, you know, John, Luke, you know, all of these, these New Testament writers, they, were ab- they, did not choose, they did not choose to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus because of an infallible Old Testament or a non-contradicting New Testament. In fact, just to frame this up a little bit different, imagine this scenario. You know, somebody from the, the future comes back to have a conversation with Peter and says, Peter, well, well, Peter, before you get all geeked out about this Jesus thing, you need to understand, do you know there's no archeological evidence for a worldwide flood? Did you know that, it's, that it's, people are skeptical of the whole idea of the Hebrew people migrating from Egypt to the promised land? Um, did you know the earth has to be more than 6,000? I mean, Peter, before you start telling everybody about Jesus, you need, you, you need to get your facts straight. And Peter would look at somebody like that and say, I'm sorry, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, but see, I watched my friend die. And then some ladies came knocking on the door and said, the tomb's empty, the tomb's empty. And I went running to the tomb and I looked in and I thought, you know what I thought? I thought somebody stole the body. 
And then later we had breakfast on the beach with my risen friend. So I don't know about all that stuff you're talking about. All I know is this, he died, he rose from the dead. And when somebody predicts their own death and their own resurrection, you just go with whatever they say, okay? My faith doesn't hang by the thread of verifying everything in the Old Testament. I'm a Jewish man, he would say. So I love the Old Testament. I wouldn't call it the Old Testament. I love the Jewish scriptures, but I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the Jewish scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because he rose from the dead. For the first 300, for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event not a book. The question that for the first 300 years was not, is the Bible true, is the Bible true, is the Bible true? The question was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And Matthew said, oh yes, he did. And Mark said, oh yes, he did. And Luke said, oh yes, he did. And John said, oh yes, he did. And Peter said, oh yes, he did. And James, the brother of Jesus said, oh yes, he did. And then a fire-breathing Pharisee named Paul, who was gonna put the church out of business, becomes a raving fan and dedicates his life to taking the gospel of Jesus to Gentile people all over the Roman world. If there's no, here's the thing, there's no explanation for the success of the church if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. The success of the church isn't the Bible tells me so. There was no Bible to tell them so. The success of the church was all was built around, totally built around eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why every Easter, every Easter I say this, we believe Jesus rose from the dead, but not because the Bible so, it's way better than that. Christianity does not hang by the thread of the Bible tells me so. Now, before I wrap up, I just wanna to talk to you one more time, personally, okay, look. If you grew up and a Bible says it, that settles it, Church, I understand that, I did too, I get that. In the United States of America, for generations and generations and generations, nobody questioned the authority of the Bible, which was a great thing. The bad thing is we shifted our focus, we shifted the spotlight, we shifted our apologetic to defending the Bible. And unfortunately for you, when you went off to college or when you went into adulthood, you ran into information that made the Bible from your perspective indefensible, and it was a house of cards and all somebody had to do was show you a part of it was questionable. And the whole thing came tumbling down and most of you were glad it did because you didn't really wanna be a Christian anyway. And yeah, now you had an intellectual reason to walk away from the faith that was hampering you. All I wanna say is this, that version of Christianity is a modern version of Christianity. It is not the original version because the original version was defensible. It was persecutable. It was fearless. It was compassionate. It was compelling. And it was endurable. So now that you're an adult, now that you're an adult, part of that little song that you learned growing up is still true. The first part is the second part that your adult faith needs to call into question. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, this you know. For John, who watched his friend die and had breakfast with him on the beach a few days later, tells you so. <laughs> Jesus loves you, this you know. For Luke thoroughly investigated the events and, and, and um, interviewed eyewitnesses to make sure 
it was so. And Jesus loves you, this you know, because the apostle Paul who hated Christians risked his life to tell you so. Jesus loves you, this you know, because Jesus' original martyrs all were, Jesus' original followers were all martyred because they believed it was so. And Jesus loves you, this you know, because the early church defied an empire and the temple because they were convinced it was so. The reason you should reconsider Christianity, the reason there is a way back to the faith of your childhood, the grown-up version, the reason you don't have to stay away from forever because of your unanswered questions, the reason has very little to do with a book. It has everything to do with a person. It has everything to do with the question, who is Jesus? And Jesus answered that question for us and punctuated his answer by rising from the dead. He predicted his own death and his own resurrection. And fortunately for us, those who were closest to the events, those who were eyewitnesses of the events, documented it. But they did not, this is important, they did not document what they believed. They documented what they saw. So if you stepped away because the Bible didn't add up, I wanna challenge you to reconsider because the issue is not about, the issue really isn't the Bible. The issue really is and always has been Jesus. Christianity didn't disrupt an empire because of a true Bible. Christianity disrupted an empire because of a resurrected savior, a savior who loves you. This I know, he died for your personal sin to prove that it was so. Next week, we're gonna pick it up right here and we're gonna ask the question, okay, so if Jesus is the guy, what did Jesus say about God? I mean, if all those gods we talked about, you know, a couple of weeks ago, if they don't exist, you know, you kind of left me with very little to go on two weeks ago, Andy. What does Jesus say about God? Because think about this, think about this. If Jesus came from God to explain God, then who better to ask, what is God like? And do we really need him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for a church where we can do these things, talk about these things. Thank you for the technology to make it so simple to follow along. Thank you for the men and women who risked and gave their lives to get these precious, precious, precious documents into circulation. For 300 years when it was dangerous and they just protected and copied and guarded with their life and buried them in the dirt to keep people from finding them and then brushed them off and read them on the weekends, late on Sunday nights. Father, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to being a part of that long lineage of faithful men and women. But Father, I pray specifically for the man or woman who's just like, Andy, I don't know, I kinda wanna step back, but there's so many unanswered questions. Would you just do what I can't possibly do with my words? Would you just stir their hearts and give them the courage to look up, maybe for the first time in a long time, to reach out, maybe for the first time in a long time, and to draw near, maybe for the first time in a long time. And Father, would you do that thing that you do where you just make us aware of your presence when our hearts and our eyes and our hands are open. And we pray all of these things, Father, in the matchless name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus, amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week for part four of Who Needs God?